Would you please pronounce your name correctly for me? Yes, my name is Sigurður Trausti Traustason. And you are the head of collections and research at the Reykjavik Art Museum. Am I correct? That is correct. Yes. Marvelous. Okay, good. <laughs> what is a, a head of collections and research? And a broad scope sensibility. My main focus is on the preservation and just working with the collection in whole. So the collection of the Reykjavik Art Museum is, we hold around 17,000 pieces of art. It's the largest single collection of artwork in Iceland. There are three main pillars in that. So there's the collections of Erro, who's one of our bigger contemporary artists, and then Karval, who is the most famous landscape artist, and then Ausmundur Sveinsson, who is a sculptor, very prominent and a pioneer in, in sculpture in Iceland. Erro, he's still with us. He's going on 90 next year, so we'll have a big exhibition with him next year, which we're looking forward to. And But Karaval and Ausmunder are both born in the 19th century. And that's more of like traditional works. But all three have it in common that they donated their works, kind of their life work, to the regular art. And then the rest of the collection is various Icelandic artists. It's probably 98% Icelandic artists. All right. So first of all, you brought a preservation. I'm a huge advocate of archival materials how much of that kind of processing stuff do you deal with on a day-to-day basis like were some of these artists using archival materials is that something that's a very uh, normal thing in the icelandic region the, or do they use sort of whatever they can get their hands on well especially ausmundur i mean we have one work which is made out of a bathtub and then these pipes and everything. So it's a sculpture that he made like that. He used whatever he could get his hands on. And the same with Carvel. He never stopped working. He was always scribbling. And we have, for instance, a, a thing we got into the collection last year was a, a gift, like a barf bag from an airline, which he had drawn on like a little landscape. And that's in our collection. So, yeah, they use whatever they could find. But most of Carol's works, the main works, are on good canvas. I, that, that's an unused barf bag, correct? Yes, yes, yes. Thank God, yeah. yeah. Okay, good. Just making sure. Like, that would be that would be tough. That would be tough to archive that. But, well, I mean, so do you do, like, the preservation and archival work, or do you have, like, archivists that work at the museum? So we have conservators and archivists that that work with us, but most of the work that goes through me and my team at the museum. So we work with going into the like environmental factors, looking at heat and humidity and all those factors are okay. And for the long time preservation of the works, of course. That's always what we have in mind, that we're preserving this for coming generations. Okay, I want to know. So the, the, the temperature the relative humidity all these like what's the optimum design i guess there's sort of two questions on that like even like light and like quantities of light like what's the right amount to not be damaging work when it's on display versus when it's in storage because i would imagine the expectations would be different basically is when it's in storage yeah they're totally different and it really depends on what you're showing so a sculpture made of stone requires other environmental factors than a watercolor painting, for instance, very susceptible to light. So what we try to work with is a relative humidity of around 45 to 55% and the heat around maybe 19 to 20 degrees Celsius. But the main factor to consider is that it's stable and it's not going like up and down. That's the main factor we're trying to to keep. And that's the hardest factor, actually. I mean, in my work, I've suddenly had to become kind of an expert in AC and how to look into that to call when something fails, because I have everything rigged up with meters that send me an SMS if something goes over like 55% or below 20% or something like that. Well, I would imagine like, because I think about like museums on a rainy day. So let's say it's raining outside. Now, of course, inside it's all temperature controlled and all that, but people are walking in in their wet clothing, wet shoes, all this kind of stuff. Like that's got to throw shit off. Yeah, 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 it does. And that's where it comes in that you try to keep that balance. You try to have a system that can work with that. 
I mean, it's never completely 100%, you know. I mean, if I, if I go mad, if I try to, it, it never goes over 55 or something. I mean, that's what we're aiming for, of course. Well, I mean, because it's also like if the, the gallery is full of people, people are breathing out and they're creating humidity as well just by their natural body heat and body temperature giving off. So, so like, you know, a full gallery is, is a different scenario than an empty gallery as well. Exactly. So that would uh, raise the heat. You should have an automated system that can figure that out, something. And yeah, exactly. Yeah, with the air quotes. Yeah, should have, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But we have a pretty good system here. I mean, it's not foolproof. You have to work with it and you have to be kind of an expert with it. But I mean, yeah, we're doing a pretty good job. All right. I forgot to ask a question. Let's take a step back. How did you even get into this? Because I can't imagine that this was something that you were doing as a child going, you know what I want to do? I want to work in collections at museums. No, 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 not at all. So from an early age, I was always very interested in, in history. I was always at my grandfather's and my grandma's place. I was always I had my nose buried in a book or, or something. And when my friends were asking for a bike, I asked my dad for an encyclopedia of history. Icelandic Encyclopedia of History, and he bought that for me, which was pretty good. But when I became a teenager, that kind of went away for a while. So I went into like design. I studied multimedia design in Denmark. I worked a little while, like a year, for Nordic Film in Denmark and made menus for DVD releases. So if you buy the DVD release of Little House in the Prairie in, in Denmark, seasons one to four, I made that, you know. <laughs> It will last forever. It's marvelous. Exactly. But after then, like most U-turns, I met a girl and she was came to live with me in Denmark. And she decided to go study in Sweden and I followed her there. And when she moved to Iceland after her studies, I didn't know what to do. So I'd finished this multimedia design work, but there was kind of, it was hard to get any jobs. So on a Friday... I sent a message to the university here and I got to enroll in history because there were so few people that applied that they just let me in. And I started on a Monday taking a history BA. And that following week, a friend of mine who was also a designer, he had been working at the Einar Jonsson Sculpture Museum, which is, he is the first Icelandic person who actually studied art in Iceland. And he said he was leaving his job if I wanted a job with school. So basically, in one week, I just completely switched what I was doing. I started working at the museum. I started studying history. I used my work at the museum as a basis for all the, all my like project works in the history degree. And then I started taking some extra classes in something called museum studies. And I saw that all the books were written by the same people from this University of Leicester. So I just... Applied there, went there, and that's how I got into this. I mean, it's just kind of a ball that just started rolling, and I just I found my place. It was kind of I didn't foresee this at all, but I love where I'm at now. It sounds like fun. Like I told you before that we recorded, like I, one of my first internships in high school was actually working at the Smithsonian's. I want to see this natural history museum working in their collections. And it was just so much fun to just like wander in the back and just open up drawers. And oh, it's just such a joy. Yeah. I mean, that's exactly what I found when I started working at Einar Jonsson Museum. I mean, I did everything there. I did everything from scrubbing the toilets to greeting guests. Because I mean, there were two persons working there while I was there. It was me and then the director of the museum. Uh, it's uh, gotten a little bit better now. The director was really happy with allowing me to do basically whatever I want. So I just went into the storage. I One day I found like this cardboard box, didn't know what was in it, and I opened it. And it was actually letters from Einar's parents to him when he was in school in 1893. And something that no one had ever found. It wasn't registered with the rest of the letter collection. So... I got a job just going through those letters and writing them up and everything. So that was a project I used for school as well. And I just, I have an endless kind of curiosity. And if I can sink myself into something like that, I just, I'm gone for days. You know. 
it's amazing the amount of stuff that are in museum collections, not even museum, any, any collection, a personal collection that people forget about that, like just, is just sort of loss. I mean, it's there physically, but people sort of don't remember that it's there. It's amazing. The amount of stuff that still could be researched more and, and cataloged better and whatever else. Yeah. And like in my job now, I oversee all the public sculptures in Reykjavik. So uh, there's 184 of them or so. I got interested in the Jonsson Museum as well. The first public statue that was raised by an Icelandic artist was in 1905 by Einar Jonsson, like poet laureate Jonas Hallgrimsson, who's like a big historical figure in, here in Iceland. And it was thought that this statue, like original, was then lost because it was cast in bronze. And I have to send, I'll send you a picture of myself. And I actually found the head of that statue, like plaster. So the artist actually kept the plaster head. And I have the biggest smile of, on my face with the head of this statue. So it's like finding treasures, like an Indiana Jones thing, you know. I was going to say, so like you play a little bit of Indiana Jones or going out and researching and finding X marks the spot kind of stuff? Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's a lot of fun to do that. And I've been for years trying to dig up one of Einar Jonsson's statues, which he gave a person in Philadelphia. I haven't still I haven't been able to find them, but I've contacted a lot of relatives and they don't know where it is. But I'm still keeping hope for it to pop up somewhere. Interesting. So okay, so I'm still sort of trying to get my head around exactly what your your job is now, because now you're like Indiana Jones traveling the world kind of stuff. I, I was picturing more like meetings and spreadsheets and things like this. Yeah, sadly, it's mostly like that these days, though. So it's 95% that it's meetings and spreadsheets because I'm the head of the department, so it's mostly Excel and numbers. I mean, really good people that work in my department, they have kind of more fun job of working in the storage themselves. But I try to take a day here and there where I can put on my white gloves and open up some crates and trying to figure out how to store this better. I love that. Tell me more about the storage. I, I'm, I, it's one of my obsessions because as a practicing artist myself, I'm always wondering, like, how should I be storing my stuff for the future properly? And then, of course, B, like, once it gets into a collection kind of thing, like, what are the, how do they store it properly? Now, I do works on paper. It's kind of obvious, really, what I'm supposed to do. But... What do you all do? Because the other part of that, too, is like the sheer volume of space that you must take up with just like things that are not on display, but you still have to store safely and properly. That's a lot. Yeah. So the analogy that we just show the tip of the iceberg is often thrown around in the museum world. And that's completely true. Like on show now, we probably maybe have around five, 600 pieces that are on show, and we have 17,000 pieces in our, in our collection. And that's because we, with the city of Reykjavik, we also supply like all the offices on the, of the city and like the city hall and meeting places. We work with them to hang the collections. So we try to keep as much of it as possible visible, but still it's only a fraction of it we are able to put up. And we have, at the moment, we have three storage areas. There's one in... Wait, don't tell addresses, though. We don't want people stealing the shit. <laughs> no, 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 no. I want, I want. So the Reykjavik Art Museum is housed in three houses. So it's Hapnerhus, our Harper House, which is in downtown Reykjavik. Then it's Ausmundshapn, which is the home and studio of Ausmund Sveinsson, which we talked about earlier. And then Karavalstar, which is kind of a pavilion in a park and an exhibition space dedicated to Jonas Karavall, painter. So, and in these places, we also have storage as well. It's very secure. Then we also have like a satellite storage. Yeah. So do tell, what's your security measures? I'm totally kidding. <laughs> <laughs> well, infrared. Yeah, I know. Biometrics. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's fingerprint or, or eye scanning. Okay, wait. Do you actually go that far? Do you really have like eye scans? No, sadly, no. Oh. We have like these laminated cards that get us into the doors. I feel like it should be more like a biometric eye scan thing. Like, I mean, come on. It's like, the, it's the history of a nation. It should be protected better. Oh, I'm I'm totally with you there. I mean, things could be better in that aspect, but I think we're doing pretty good. Armed guards? Do you have an armed guard out at the side of the collection or anything? No, no. No. God, 
you should protect your culture better. Yeah, we don't have any like Van Goghs that cost a hundred million dollars or something like that. Yet. Yet, exactly. We have artists that are going there, like Ragnar Kjartansson and Olaf Eliasson, who are big stars now. So, yeah, we're getting there as well. And we have works by them, of course, in our collection. So, yeah, at these three places, so we store the collection, we split it up according to what we're storing at what place. So there are different environmental and security factors in these three different places. So it's totally different where we store the works on paper, where we have a specific set of environmental standards, and then where we store our sculptures, which has another one, which is not as strict, you know. And then where we keep our treasures, we have energy system, which is kind of like a fire system that pushes out all the oxygen and such things like that. So it's different levels of security and environmental factors. Okay, I have a super stupid specific question. When you're talking about like, let's say works on paper or paintings, do you store them vertically or do you store them horizontally? Depends on if they're framed or not. If they are framed, we hang them in, in racks or keep them in racks that we have. If they're not framed, they're on paper. We have them in like acid tree, like folders that are in shelves. Yeah, clam clamshell boxes. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. Okay. I'm always wondering about that because like I have some works that I keep vertical, some that I lay flat and I'm like, oh shit, should I be not doing it that way? Should I be doing it this other way? I never know what the right way to do it is. No, basically if it is framed, I would always hang it. If it's not framed, you would lay it. And acid-free tissue paper and acid-free folders are your best friend and acid-free boxes as well. So they don't give off any gases or anything that can uh, affect the paper, you know. Sorry, I'm laughing under my breath. That because because like there was a point in my career where I, I was like, oh, you know what I do need to do? I need to put everything with glycine between it and put it in like nice archival clam clamshell boxes, all this. The price of me having to buy all of that shit probably cost more than the artwork that I put in it because that stuff's not cheap. <laughs> not at all. That's very true. Man, yeah. I was just like, fuck. Mm-hmm. Do you, do you all like have a guy in Iceland that does this or do you buy them like somewhere else and ship them in? We mostly ship them in. There are a few companies that buy, for instance, from Denmark and we buy from them. Yeah, I'm just wondering because I'm like, that's that would be a really great profession to get into designing archival pH balanced boxes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's an interesting field if you can get into that. Also... Like I follow a few companies on Instagram that make display cases and all kinds of this and make these art storage boxes. And of course, I follow Art Handler Mac. This is a great resource to seeing how you should not do things. It's just like art handlers making fun of each other, basically. Uh, I love that. So, yeah, that's where I kind of nerd out. I try to find the different collection departments and other museums that are actually putting out videos or putting out content. And I should actually try to be more doing that a bit more. I mean, I'm doing a podcast now, so someone will probably listen to this. Hey, that's a step up. Exactly. Okay. But like, I'm even thinking, like, I obsess about containers. I don't know where this fetish came from, but I love a beautiful container for a thing. Like, I'm a sucker for packaging and design when it comes to, like, buying stuff. My wife hates it. But when it comes to, like, storing artworks are there sort of standardized materials that are used that are sort of the right because like i would imagine a marble sculpture let's say you could pretty much just store that in anything because there's nothing that's going to physically damage that as far as a storage material but yet like i would want to like line that in velvet and like do it all beautiful and i mean like is it is it purely functional things that you create just like just keep it safe or do you actually make them somehow interesting and fun and aesthetically pleasing? Uh, It's mostly functional, but for me, a lot of them actually look very good, though. I just commissioned Crate for an artwork, which is kind of these stones that are kind of, they look like they're prehistoric stones with fossils on them. And there are like 10 of them, I think, or each is like 
this big or something. I can't say this big. No one sees this. <laughs> yeah, this big. Can't you all see how big he's saying? Yeah, exactly. You're, you, it looked like you were doing like maybe about... 20, 30 centimeters or something. 40 yeah, 20, yeah, that looks about right. Yeah, I'll go with that. Yeah, in width. And we made a crate with shelves for each one. And each shelf is lined with foam. And then we package all, all of the stones in cloth as well, you know. And it's really cool, like you pull out each shelf if you're just going to show one of them or two of them. And that crate is very aesthetically pleasing. Okay, I'm going to nerd out with you on this for a minute. So when you say foam, what kind of foam are you talking about? Because I know some foam gives off horrible gases and is really bad, but but there are other foams that are better. Like right now I'm sitting in my little podcast thing and I've got like our acoustic foam, but that would not be appropriate because it gives off horrible gases. So like, is it, are, are there particular mediums? So, and then you even said wrapped in a cloth, like linen, silk, what are you doing here? Yeah, it depends, again, on the works that you're storing. It's always, for every case, you have to look at what you actually have. So for the sculptures that we do, these foam stands for some of them, for the smaller sculptures. And then we have acid-free linen that's washed and is, that isn't dyed at all, that we wrap around them or we create bags, kind of like these head bags that we put over them. And then we then we just tie them off with, with string so they don't fall off. But it, it kind of really depends on what you have, what material you use. I mean, we have a book that we just look up in. Yeah, okay, that's this material, and then we can just... So, collections management book, I often look up kind of my Bible. Uh, wait, wait, there's a book? What, wait, what's this book? Tell Give me the full title of this book again. I don't remember it at the moment, but I can send it to you, so you can link it. Please do. I will link it in the show notes. It will be marvel. I want to know what this book is because, like, that's that's the kind of thing. Like, this is the kind of knowledge that I'm looking for. The knowledge that like isn't readily available yet. We all should be doing. Exactly. Exactly. Drives me nuts. Yeah. Anyways, all right. So when it comes to your so. One of the big things I think about about collections is a lot of like, okay, you said you had 17,000 pieces in the collection, but only 500 on display at any given moment. Yeah. Digitization. It's a huge thing these days. Are you doing it? Yes. We're uh, doing okay with that because we have images of all the works that we have, but some of them were taken kind of in maybe early 2000s, and now they're, I can't use them. If I'm going to print something, I can't use that. It's like a stamp size, you know. I don't know, yeah. Yes, very low resolution, yes. Exactly. So I have to do them again, and we were very lucky. Past half year, we've had a photographer working full-time at the museum, who's actually been just working upwards from the year 2000 and up to fix all the images. And there's a company here who's who's been we're being in talks with to like 3D models of some of the outdoor sculptures as well. Well, and that's what I was going to ask about was like, is it just about making an image? Because like, I, I'm some for me like again, I have the weirdest fetishes I know, but like, I love the backs of paintings and like all the little details on the backs of them, the screws that they use, the nails, the little scribbled things written on the back, whatever. These things are really amazing to me. So like, are you doing or are you intending to do at some point like a, like a 3D rendering of like even a two-dimensional work to be able to show the backs and all this kind of stuff? We haven't done that for two-dimensional works yet, but we have a few works in the collection which are interesting in that way that the artist may be painted on both sides of the canvas. So obviously we've taken photographs of both sides and for a couple of them you can look everything up from our collection online. I'll give you the link to that to put it put on as well. And for some of those works, you can look at the backs as well. For instance, for many of the older works, what they used to do is that they put like little stickers or something about which exhibition the work had been on. And what actually makes an artwork or an object in, in a museum valuable is the information about it. So if we don't have any information about, say, we're in a historical museum, if we have a mug, it's just a mug, but if it was the mug of Abraham Lincoln, it's kind of more interesting. But if that information is lost, the value of the object is a lot less. The collection work is a lot about collecting information and storing that in the right place. We have 
a database system which stores all the information for, about our collection. A part of that is then the public can look that up online. A part of that, yes. Okay, but what, well, one thing I always wonder is with museums in particular, you all have insane budgets. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm not. I'm not criticizing. Okay, I'm just saying you have these very large budgets. And then as technologies advance, you're then sort of obligated to then like utilize the new technologies and stuff. I feel like while digitization is amazing and it, it sort of equals it out. So like literally anybody in the world could have access to these things to do research or to do whatever they need to do to, you know, look at the works. That's really expensive to do. Yeah. Well, I would love to work at one of these museums with insane budgets because I don't, I don't have. <laughs> okay, you're not in an insane budget museum. No. So, for instance, our storage spaces are all completely full because I sit on all the acquisition committee meetings, so I take the notes for those, and I'm always thinking, please don't buy that. That's too big. I can't store it. That's kind of a problem for us. Well, wait, okay. I've got a question I want to know about. So like when I picture the storage space in a museum, which I've only been into one or two, I picture like the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark, like a big, you know, stacks upon stacks of boxes upon boxes. Like, are you literally like storing things like to the ceiling in boxes or is it like all one level, easily accessible? Like how organized is it like that? It's as organized as we can with the space that we have. It's kind of like Raiders in the Lost Ark. We have one storage space which we store our sculptures that has seven meters high, and we store things to the height there. But I mean, in between, like where the space is most often free, but I mean, when you're working for exhibitions, you kind of hurry maybe and you put something away that you have to put in the correct place later on. So things can get a bit, you have to tidy up after exhibitions, for instance. It's a non-stop work. It's a kind of a non-stop cycle with exhibitions because we work very closely, of course, with the exhibitions in that way. Okay. You brought up acquisitions committees. So fascinating. Are, so you're on it, but do you have any say in it other than we can't store that because it's too fucking big? I mean, like beyond that, is it, do you have any say in any of that kind of stuff? No, I'm just there as, like, they can consult me. I, I look, I work, can work for the acquisition committee, and I take the meeting notes and things like that. So I don't have a say in what is what. And no. But I, of course, can consult on things and can tell them how things really are. But there are other factors that are decided by the acquisition committee, what is bought and what is not. I have not personally been to the Reykjavik Art Museum, so let's keep that in mind. I will be traveling there next year, by the way, and I hope to meet you when I come. Yeah, yeah, we will be very welcome. Marvelous. And what's the, what's the breadth of it? So, like, is the Reykjavik Art Museum like a, an entire historical nature of art throughout the history of Iceland, or is it more contemporary? Is there another museum that's more like historical art objects and artifacts, or is it like what's the scope of your your collection? So it's more contemporary with the Reykjavik Art Museum, except for the collections of, of Karol and Ausmund Svensson, which go a bit more back. But the main collection is probably from the 1960s, 1970s and onward. And then there's the National Gallery, which is more on the historical part. But then we also have kind of a different focus between our buildings. So in Hapnerhus, which is downtown, it's more contemporary art shows and that's the main focus there but then in Karvalstad it's more maybe historical things mixed in with contemporary art as well so years ago we had an exhibition of William Morris and things like that we tried to have an international connection as well for instance with William Morris he traveled here and had huge interest in, in Iceland so that was an easy connection but the last few years the last year and like with COVID and everything we can't have talking about COVID a little bit and everything. We've had to focus a bit more inward. And for instance, our whole programming now is local artists and the Icelandic scene, basically. So we don't have any exhibitions from about this year, but we hope to revive that next year as well. I'm available. I'll be happy to have an exhibition. It's fine. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Marvelous. <laughs> you come over and we'll see. 
I will bring some work. If you, if you will hook me up with a curator, I will bring work with me. Now, another part of your title though is research. So what, what, give me a little scope and understanding of what the, the, that aspect of your job entails. Yeah. So we have a huge, well, maybe not huge compared to a lot of museums. We have a big archive, which concern all the artists that we works by. And for instance, we have almost a complete archive of Ausmunder and Karawal, and then contemporary artist called Magnus Paulson, who is still working though. So the research part is a lot in allowing researchers to come in and use this material, kind of putting that material out there so it can be available for researchers and for kids in from from, from all levels of education up to the universities, of course. And then, of course, all exhibitions, there's a little bit of research behind all exhibitions. And we try to make it so that all the exhibitions, they leave something behind. They're just not temporary things that you come and see, but you can build upon them. And we, for instance, on our website, you can look up all the exhibition pamphlets and everything from since the Reykjavik Art Museum started. So if you're interested in researching Icelandic art, it's a very good place to start there. And now recently we got a grant to start a research position at the museum, which we're very happy about. So, yeah, <laughs> well, there will be, we will put out a call and everyone can apply because he pointed to himself, of course, so that's, that's what you're missing. Thank you for clarifying <laughs> that for the, for the listeners. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I, I would, that would be an amazing job to do, be a head, like the head researcher. Oh, that'd be so much fun. Yeah. Mate, well, okay, well, just as a little thing, okay, <laughs> stupid thing, because this is a worldwide podcast and people listen to it all over the world, like, can anybody apply to work? Because, I mean, from what I understand, so keep in mind, this is my stupid foreigner perspective. The Reykjavik Art Museum seems to be funded by the government, and I would assume that, like, a, a working ability to speak in Icelandic is probably important to a job there. So, unless you have already have a pre-existing knowledge of Icelandic and or, let's say, residency or property or whatever in Iceland, probably not going to be getting a job there. Okay, so, first of all, we're funded by the, the city of Reykjavik. So, if a Reykjavik official is listening to this, we're funded by the city of Reykjavik, not the state. So, just uh, so my bosses won't get angry at me. If they're listening. Excellent clarification. It's good. Yeah. And I should say that, uh, yeah, we are well funded. I'll say that as well now, but just to go back on that. We're very well funded. It's very good. Everything is fine. Things are good, but they could be better. Oh, don't kid yourself. Every, every, everybody can be better funded. I mean, we all, I've never met a single person in the creative industries that goes, oh, you know what? We have plenty of money. Yeah. Yeah. We can do whatever we want. That just doesn't yeah. happen. <laughs> No, no. Unless it may be a private museum. I could see them being fully like, no, we don't need any more money. But a publicly supported always needs more support. I mean, I, I will say that if you won't. Yeah, 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 that's true. Like the foundation museums, they're probably pretty good. Maybe they should donate something to us. <laughs> but anyway, the language is a barrier, of course. We have on staff... We have a Canadian researcher now, or curator, who's working with us. He's been living in Iceland though, for the last 10 years, so she speaks Icelandic. We also have an intern program, which you can apply for to us. So there's information about that on our website. So if anyone is listening and wants to do an internship at the Reykjavik Art Museum, please look us up and send us an application. So it's kind of just open-ended. Well, wait, and just to be clear on this, like, so this is a, a European, Northern European thing. They're paid internships. They're not, like, in America, In the word internship means free labor. Yeah. Well, it's kind of paid, but not by us. So it's through these, like, your podcast got the EEA grant now. There's a grant called the Erasmus grant in Europe. So we kind of focus on taking funded interns. So we don't take intern we, we don't take free labor. That's what we're trying to do. I mean, I applied for an internship at the British Museum once, and they were going to make me uh, not pay me and just make me stand in one of the galleries and count people in. So <laughs> I mean, what am I getting out of that? Yeah, 
it's just uh, it's just not the nice thing to do yeah well for the listeners around the world again erasmus is the term used for basically like study abroad it is what that was often that the equivalent of that exactly but we also had a canadian intern she had gotten the grants to be able to come as well so we've taken people from all around the world but mostly it's from europe so most of them come from like germany italy or france that we have taken in last year and a half we haven't had any interns of course because yeah yeah COVID. it's not possible to travel yeah okay back to the research thing though so like when i was in high school i had the amazing luxury and i'm totally just gonna like own it that it was totally luxurious that I grew up near the Smithsonian. My mother actually worked at the Smithsonian. I did my internship at the Smithsonian. And when I was doing a, an art project in high school, I got to go in and literally like request to get like a, a Van Gogh print or a Munk print. And I literally got to go in and handle these things as a high school student because I just asked to. I was like, hey, I'd like to do this. And they were like, sure, no problem. I'm like, holy fuck. Is, is so these research opportunities is, do you need any credentials to be able to access like so like if i showed up at the Re Reykjavik art museum can anybody sort of ha like have access to any work of art to do research on or do they have to have like academic credentials or anything like this well i mean if you have a good reason to see it and if you have like a research project or yeah anyone can send us a request I don't think I've ever said no to a request like that. So yeah, it's been everything from high school students want to see your work and take a picture of it for for <laughs> always pointing to himself. Yes, I did. For a for a project for a project or anything. Yeah, because I want it to be open and I want it to be available. We're in service of the public and we're keeping this for the citizens of Reykjavik. So it's their works. So they should be able to see them. But I mean, if you come in and you want to see 150 works by this artist and you want to see them on Monday, I'm going to say no to that. I mean, it has to be, there are limits, you know, on what you can get. Right. So, I mean, okay, so let's say like somebody wants to do some research and they want to come to the museum. What would you say? Uh, a month's notice, two months, two weeks notice? Like how much notice to make you feel comfortable? If it would be, Two weeks notice, I think that would be enough, unless it's a really large ask or a really large project that you're, that you're doing. Right, or like a sculpture that needs a forklift or something, right? Yeah, 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 exactly. Uh, then the first question, would it be enough for you to see high-resolution images of it? But, but, but would you pull it out? Like, let's say I came, like, let's say I was an, an actual academic and I was doing some research on the history of a particular artist and i wanted to come and see some really big stone sculpture that needs a forklift to be moved out and seen would you do it i think so yeah All right. yeah yeah i think so i tried to accommodate people but we'll see when it happens we'll see if i'm in a good mood or not but yeah of course you want to especially if it's an academic that's doing uh, like legit research of course okay and i have a question about that so in your collection so you all are an art museum do you have only the artworks or do you have like, cause when I'm thinking about it is this, okay. So like, let's say there's an artist who's, they have an estate and they die and they donate it to the museum. They don't often just donate the artworks, but they'll donate paperwork and receipts and sketchbooks and other sort of unsundry sort of business items that go along with their career kind of stuff. Do you all also house all that stuff? Yes, we do. So for the collections of Ausmunder, Carval and Arrow, which I've frequently talked about, we have, have material like that. For instance, when Ausmunder passed away and Carval, they had donated all of their belongings, which were in their studios, to the museum. And obviously there was everything from cigarette butts to flower vases to whatever. And of course, all of their material that they used to make the artworks, all of the tools and everything like that. That's also a very interesting part. I mean, it's an interesting part for, for the research. Like we started talking about really early in the podcast about what kind of paint they used and what kind of brushes they used. And especially for like our conservator, he is working now on researching Arrow and 
what material he has used for his painting. So and is working on an article, a research article about that. So she's both looking into the paintings themselves. She's looking into our archival material, and she is lucky that Arrow is still alive, so she can just ask him. Wait, so you all also, you do you have a collection, you allow people to come in and do research, but you all also do research that's then published in either journals or books or anything like this, yeah? Yeah, we try to be active in taking part in like seminars and be active in writing into magazines and websites and all kinds of that as well. Yeah, yeah, we try to do that. Nice. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Museum work, what I love about museum work, and one of the things that really drew me to it early on is how varied it is. I'm kind of never doing the same thing. I don't work in like a bottling factory and moving things back and forth in the same movement. I mean, when I come to work, I usually have an idea of what I want to accomplish that day, but I usually do something completely different because someone comes in, hey, uh, that you just fell into the pond downtown. We have to, we have to fish it out. And that actually happened two years ago. So there's like a bronze statue of a mermaid that actually took a dive into the pond. The phone call was like, the mermaid is gone. I was just, what? What are you talking about? She's gone. I just didn't believe it. So I went down there and yeah, she was gone. She had just fallen over in bad weather. So we had to fish her out. And yeah, that's kind of, and then it's back to the desk to write reports again. So it's all kinds of things I have to deal with. And of course, like the guests, then it's the guests. Wow, I have stories there. Like what they do in the galleries. Oh, I, I love it. Please do tell. <laughs> yes. So there's a work by an artist called Katrin Sigurdot, which is kind of this big white box with a hole in the top. You're supposed to climb on it and then put your head through it. And then when you look on the inside on the top, you're kind of like your head is in the clouds. So you see like mountain tops and stuff like that. And it's a beautiful piece. It's nice. It's kind of an interactive thing. Kids love it and everything. And the hole that you stick your head through is is not much larger than your head. But people are actually going inside of it. <laughs> so what we had to do a couple, like three, four times, we had to actually paint the floor and the work because people had just, yeah, I don't know how. They had probably had to like smear themselves with oil or something to just squeeze in there. And there are no touching signs they don't work. <laughs> And uh, artwork made out of this kind of like these long light bulbs that kind of made the waterfall. And then there was these water sounds that were in them as well. I can send you pictures of all of this. Amazing. Yeah. And someone just walked in there and turned the work off. So he had to like break through all of the light bulbs. And then he went to the front desk and said, yeah, I turned the work. I turned the work off. And they were just, why? Why did it do it? I thought I was supposed to. So these kinds of things. Nothing surprises me anymore with what guests do in the galleries. I worked at the Smithsonian at one point uh, at the information desk at the in the museum. And literally, like, right over my head was this massive sign the size of my body extended, so what, two, two meters wide, that says restrooms with a big arrow pointing to the left. And Every single day, people walk right up to me and be like, pardon me, where's the restroom? <laughs> exactly. And I'm just like, there's a huge sign that is larger than me right over my head. I swear to God, when people leave their homes, common knowledge and just like basic skills just go way out the window. They just don't even notice these things. It's astounding. Exactly. That's most often the case. But then, then you get, I mean, on the other spectrum, you get lovely visitors that even sent us requests about seeing more works by this artist and after, after the visit and everything. So, yeah, we have a broad spectrum of visitors that come to us. Okay, wait, do you deal with insurance? Yeah, that's a part of my job as well. I have always been fascinated. Now, you don't have to give me exact numbers or anything like this, but I've always been fascinated. Like, how does a museum do insurance <laughs> like, i mean because you've got these incredibly valuable things that you're going to say okay and now we're going to put them out in front of a bunch of idiots and just hope and pray that they don't damage it how do you insure that so we are in business with an insurance broker that we insure for a fixed amount each year which i can't tell you what is i don't want to know <laughs> no and if something happens it goes out of that fixed amount you know 
And if it goes over, then we pay a higher premium. So we say that kind of all of the exhibitions this year, for instance, will cost an X amount of money. And if they are lower than that, we pay less. If they're higher than that, we pay more in the premium. So that's basically how we do it. And if anything breaks or something, we send a report and everything is, of course, in, insured through those brokers. Okay, but if things break... Yeah, that makes sense. It, it does. It, I'm just... Yeah, it does. But it's, just such, it's such a difficult... I mean, I would be afraid. I'm afraid of just my friends coming over and even looking at my artwork in my home. I'm like, don't touch that. <laughs> yeah. but, and you just like open it up to any, but any old Joe, Joe Dick and whatever to just walk in and no matter what their knowledge of how to treat artwork is, but like what happens if things get damaged? I mean, have you had any damages intentional or unintentional that have happened that you've had to like repair other than a, a mermaid falling in a fountain? Well, yeah, there are always a couple of cases each year, actually. So, yeah. Really? See, because the public never hears about these things. So that's why I'm always sort of like, does this actually happen? Because I imagine it does happen. It does. But since I started working at the Reykjavik Museum, which was, I've been a relatively short time since 2017, we've not had anything that's irreparable, that can't be fixed. And I th sometimes think that conservators, they do magic. It's insane. I mean, we have had one piece by artist Louisa Matiasdóttir, which is a, who was a prominent painter in Iceland, most of her career in New York, though, or in America. One of her work was actually slashed, so it was just like an axe in it. But if you look at that painting today, you don't see it unless you know where to look. And if you look on the back of it, you can see it because the conservator stitched it together. You can see that in the back where you put in like patches, basically. Well, I would imagine like trip and falls happen a lot. I mean, I remember being a kid and I nearly ran into a Jasper Johns at one point. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, it, it happens. I mean, it's just it's the sort of the the percentages basically you have 10,000 people come through an exhibition the possibility that one of them is going to just by accident trip and fall and touch it or damage or whatever is going to be inevitable exactly but on purpose it's hardly ever happens but it does happen but we haven't experienced a lot of like malice you know someone that comes just to destroy something you know Accidents, they, they do happen. And also curiosity it happens a lot. It's like they really want to touch it. I, I'm one <laughs> yeah. of those people. I so want to touch every piece of art. I want to like feel the brush strokes. And like, yeah, they would kill me if I did that, I'm sure. Yeah. Do those like, okay, because I've been to museums and they have like those little ro little small ropes on the ground. And then like, and they, and they sort of imply that there's some sort of sensor thing. Are those things real? Like, could I actually touch it? Like, <laughs> like is, there a, is there a motion sensor or like a touch sensor that's going to know I touched it? Yeah, in some museums there are. We had that once and it can get very annoying. For instance, I went to the Venice Biennale once and there's this huge gallery and there were hundreds of people walking by and one of these works had these, this trip sensor. If you got too close to it, it started like wailing. And it was happening all the time because there were so many people. No one was actually going and touching it. They were just walking a bit too close. So, yeah, it can be difficult at times. Yeah, yeah. I, I've tripped those off myself a few times. But but that's what that's when a museum, like just when they just put a piece of tape on the floor that basically says, don't go over this piece of tape. And I just didn't see the piece of tape. And I just sort of walked a little too close to it. And I'm like, oh, shit, the alarm's going off. Yes. I'm one of those bad people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're a terrible person. No, <laughs> well, the accidents happen. I mean, that's just a part of it, and we just have to deal with that. But we do take every precaution that nothing happens. We try to have signs. We have obviously CCTV and all these kinds of, and we have people and guards walking the galleries. So we try to make this not happen. But for instance, like in the Einar Jonsson Museum, which is the oldest museum in, in Reykjavik, there's a statue of, it's called the Outlaw. So it's a man who's holding his dead wife on his shoulder because he promised he would bury her in the hallowed ground if she would die in the highlands where there were outlaws. And he has a dog as well. So the nose of the dog is glistening. 
because everyone is always touching the nose of the dog. And this is a sculpture made in 1901. So we can actually see see a little bit of depth in it even when where everyone is like stroking it because it's made out of plaster. Yeah, because like I could I've I've rubbed my share of like bronze Buddhas and bellies and things like that, but like a plaster piece that's a little I wouldn't do that to a plaster piece, but a, but a bronze I'm perfectly fine with rubbing a bronze. Yeah, I mean for instance, like we do in our sculpture park at the Ausmunde Museum, we have had like tours for blind people who and they can come and they can touch the works and we're telling them how they are and uh, of course for the outdoor sculptures uh, people can touch them and. Even in the sculpture park, people can climb in two of the works and everything. So, and it's very popular. Again, pointing yeah. to myself. Yes. Yeah. The, yeah. The, no. Wait. Okay. So, back to the public sculpture stuff. Now, is your job just again sort of maintenance and that kind of stuff, or do you have any decision making process in sort of the what's installed? Both. It's mostly the maintenance and everything. So, when I took over for the past ten years before I came here. The budget for the maintenance of the works was really, really low. Just since there was a big financial crash, obviously, in, in Iceland after 2007. And then everything was just cut down. So in my first year, I went with Olaf Christine, which is our museum director. And I just showed PowerPoint, just like of works that were falling apart. They were graffiti to shit. And they just, yeah, here's money. Fix this, please. And I'm very proud of that because we've we've managed to take that to a whole new level. Like 90% of them are in really good state at the moment and the rest we're working on. But then I've been so lucky that over the past few years there have been competitions, like open competitions. And I've been like a consultant on those and worked with those competitions. So I'm not like in the process of choosing the works, but I'm one of the persons that the committees that are choosing the works, they come and speak to me about, like, can this really stand outside for a hundred years? Or, like, this, we have a, someone is composing a, this paper mache boy. Can he stand outside in the rain? No. Well, I used to run a, a public sculpture program. It was a little different. It was a, every six months, it was a rotating thing because the community had never had public art per se and so it was sort of introducing them to new different ideas new different styles and all this kind of stuff so they could start to learn for themselves what sort of they liked kind of thing but anyways but so the you're saying these 180 sculptures is that right i got the number right yeah okay great 184 actually 184 sculptures <laughs> are permanently installed yeah yeah, so these are just outer works, all kinds of, it ranges from just these normal monuments of persons, mostly men from the 20th century, and then to installations and all kinds of new artwork. In 2019, we had, the year was focused on public art. So there were competitions, there were three, two competitions about public art, and then we had seminars and symposiums and like guided tours and everything was focused on public art. And that was a project we actually got nominated for the Icelandic Museum Awards for, for that project. So we're very proud of our this part of the collection, the public arts. Um, well, okay. Are there any topics that you want to talk about that maybe I didn't ask you about? Or something you want to flesh out that I didn't give you the opportunity to say enough about? No, not, not that I remember, no. Marvelous. Then we'll move on. Uh, is there anything that want to have more information about, or...? Depending, like hearing about your background, I think we could talk for like five five hours now. We have a lot oh, of things yeah, in I common. I talk about this shit for days. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I used to be a drug addict. I used to be a roadie. I used to do all kinds oh. of shit in my life. I What I've done... I used to be a singer in a death metal band. So Somehow not, not surprising. Like I, I believe that almost every person in Iceland at one point or another in their lifetime was in a band. Yeah, a lot of them, and most of them have also written a book. So yeah, that's just is that another yeah, one? Write yeah. a book, okay. So to finish this up, the last two questions that I ask everybody would be: um, Do you have any people, uh, some artists that you're sort of paying attention to, or sort of inspiring you that are working out on the contemporary market these days? Yeah, I think I'd I'd have to say, like for instance, of course. Ragnar Kjartansson, which is one of our most famous artists in Iceland at the moment. 
the humor and humility of his works that just kind of draws me to him. Then it's Elin Hansdottir. She actually is going to be on show in an exhibition that we're opening on the 11th of June now. And it focuses on a certain generation of artists. So who were born like maybe 79 to 87 or something like that. What I like about her is that she looks into like old movie magic, how, how things were doing with forced perspective and all these kinds of things. Like if you look at the old Chaplin movies, how, how we like hang off these rails or something, how they actually did that without endangering his life, you know. And she works a lot with that, with illusions somehow. And I love that. She's doing kind of the work that she's doing now in, in the galleries is kind of three different miniatures of the gallery in the gallery. So it's really cool work. Yeah, it, it was the, the movie uh, it, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. They, they did all a lot of forced perspective stuff in there. Absolutely gorgeous. All done. Uh, exactly. Love it. Yeah. So like just practical effect. I love that stuff. So not computer generated, but practical. I love it. And craftsmanship in that, you know. And then I'd say Seudo Guyonson, who will be our outstanding person who will be showing at the Venice Biennale next year. He works in a video, and yeah, we just have to see them to appreciate it. Fabulous. Brings up a question I totally forgot to ask. I'm always interested, like, so technologies are always advancing, as you talked about, with, like, digitization of, of works from 20 years ago is useless. Now, when it comes to, like, be having digital artwork in a collection, so video works or any other sort of digital filed work, do you all, like update the technology every like 10 years like so if something was done on like a laser disc like do you transfer it to an mp3 or like like do you all actually do that or do you just keep with the original production thing it depends on what the artist's guidelines are so like some artists they specifically say that this work can only be shown on a certain type of device and then we follow those guidelines and we try to have that equipment available and it's always best if we have like dedicated hardware for a certain work but that is most of not the case so we have to like use the same hardware for a lot of different works but yeah we try to follow the artist's wishes on that but then sometimes we can if the artist is alive we can ask them maybe can we project this do we really have to show it on 16 8 like 433 monitor so like I've been saying over and over again, it's just like depends on the work, on each work. We just have to look at it and then decide. Well, but like I'm even thinking about like, let's say what right now would be video work. So video work oftentimes is put onto a USB drive and then, then basically that USB drive is just plugged into a projector of some sort and played. But 20 years from now, USB drives are going to be outdated and useless, and there are not going to be any projectors with USB connections in them. So it's like, you know, like whose responsibility is that to sort of update artworks that are based in technology? I mean, I understand you're saying that it like you try to be faithful, but let's say, let's say the artist didn't give you any guidelines and you have something in the collection and like, let's say it's a, I don't know, Betamax. <laughs> like I'm trying to think of some horribly outdated thing. An eight track, <laughs> you know, something you can't get a player for. Will you like update it and put it onto a newer technology? Is that something that collections do? Is that a normal practice or not normal? Yeah, that's a normal practice because you're always thinking about how you can preserve the things for the future. For instance, if something was on eight track, <laughs> we would maybe try to get an 8-track player and record that on a digital medium. And uh, what we do is that we store everything that we get. If we get a work on a USB, we put it on a hard drive. Then we put it on our collective hard drives in the city. And those have like a very strict backup policy. So it's kind of like just putting in the cloud, you know. Which was going to be my next question, which is like, how many redundant backups do you have? Like, I'm obsessive about this. I have... Like I have my stuff on my hard drive on my computer proper, and then I have two backups. It's like, so I have a hard drive backup, and then I generally have like an SSD backup of the backup kind of thing. Cause like, you just never know. Like, because technology just 
fails like for whatever stupid reason you know it's not like you spill something on it it just fritzes and you lost it kind of thing so like how many how much or how many backups do you do you need to for you as the head of the collection and research to feel comfortable that you have like sort of backed it up enough and secured it enough if i think i mean it would be the original so it would be the on the usb keep it there there would be a copy on a hard drive, an external hard drive. There would be a copy on maybe a Blu-ray or DVD if it's work. And then it would be on the yeah, backups of it on different spaces. I mean, it's hard as well because like the last video work we got from Ragnar Kjartansson is 300 gigabytes or something. It's like an eight series video work, like eight different views. And I mean, it's huge. So like when I was asking for more space from the city, they were just like, what? <laughs> I got a terabyte extra that day. I was very glad. Well, I mean, it, it, that's one of those things too, is like, it's really hard because like, I, I even look at like YouTube videos, like YouTube compresses. And then oftentimes people steal it from YouTube, which then compresses it again. And then people will re-upload it, which compresses it again. So like, it's really hard not only to like, have that original file because they're generally you know the highest quality an artist can make so it's generally a very large file size and then to, be, <laughs> to have multiple copies of that that's a ton of hard drive space that costs a lot of money like god yeah there's a saying in iceland you have to have a best and suspenders you know you just have to have everything you know correct it's a very interesting topic that we for instance, sent two of our own here for a seminar in New York or a course in New York at MoMA, which was just dedicated on this. And we've been talking about this thing, like also in history with historians that they're talking about like the digital dark age that we are living now, because there won't be anything left two, three, four hundred years from now. I mean, all these servers will have crashed, all these pictures people have taken and never printed out none of those will exist no one will know how their great great grandmother looked like uh, not like we have now we have physical copies of pictures it just takes one strategically placed emp and it's all gone yeah exactly when you think about it it kind of gives me the sweats you know all of this can be lost oh yeah 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 i mean i've probably spent more on my backup hard drive like tears in the rain <laughs> i've got i've spent more money on backup hard drives than i have on like computers just because i want redundant backups and and then of course like your your backups like i have a backup that still has like a sata connection <laughs> which of course no no computers have that anymore so i can't even like even if i needed that backup i can't access it but i'm sure i can find a computer with that but. yeah i started this a bit early on even before i went into museums because i had like these zip drives like with these spools you know like, yeah yeah oh sorry <laughs> i i have no way of i had jazz drives and exactly yeah i still have optical disk drives like the ones that are like cases with basically a cd inside of it that you put the whole case inside of a drive like it's ridiculous but i, I still have those files no no way to read them but i still have the files no exactly and the kind don't know what's on there yeah there's like a summer vacation in 2000 or something like oh no no i have my actual like art projects from college that i did made in college on these drives and i I don't even remember what I made, so I don't even know what's on the files. <laughs> but I still have the files. So, yeah. All right. Um, last bit is uh, advice. So, uh, specifically, what I'm interested in is, like, for you, for, like, the next generation of people that want to work in collections at museums, like, any advice about career choices or things to stay away from in career choices? <laughs> If you want to make a lot of money, stay away from museum work. <laughs> but uh, if you have the passion for it, it's great. I love coming to work. I was just talking to a coworker early on. We were sitting outside eating our lunch. I love coming to work. I'd say that for someone who's looking into this is just don't be afraid to contact persons at the museums you would like to work at. I mean, most of these people have such passion for their work and what for what they're doing that they want to share it. And they 
at least I love it when people come and contact me, like students asking for advice or asking to do projects at their school. Like all of my projects that I did when I was in school were rooted in like real projects. So there were four museums. And I think that's a very good thing to do. Just try to get contacts and do like real projects and not to be afraid to contact people at the museums. Okay, wait, last little bit then. When I think of museum people, I think of curators because, of course, they're the sort of the public face of most museums. And they're often very specialized. You know, like I had one curator that like specialized in like Russian propaganda posters from 1940 to 1960. I mean, like stupid, like very esoteric, like little minutia kind of things. It sounds to me like your your field, your sort of career choice is the opposite of that. It's it's you just love everything. Yeah, I'm kind of a jack of all trades, like master of none, but jack of all trades. Isn't that something you say, you know? So that's what I love. Like I said before, it's the variety. And I mean, I would say that I'm kind of if I was a curator, I would be focused on Einar Jonsson, the sculpture, because I'm also the head of board there. So that's kind of my kind of little, a bit insane about him since I worked there. So that's my focus. Wait, I'm sorry. You're the head of a board also? Yeah. Chairman of the board at Einar Jonsson Museum. Very impressive. Very nice. Anything else that you want to talk about? No, just has been a lot of fun. I'd like to do it again. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, I will be coming to Iceland next year. So my plan is to like gather up all the people that I have as guests and maybe we'll go all go out to dinner or something like that. Oh, that sounds lovely. Please contact me and I'll even show you in museum stores so you can see how they are. Uh, do that. Do a little tour. <laughs> I, I love doing that. Like you have no idea. It was, I still remember going into the Smithsonian and I, I, I got to see an Edward Munch print and they let me like put on the white gloves and they let me like pick it up and like look at the back of it and like take notes on it It, it, you know all the all the policies to like the i couldn't have a pen while i was in there doing the research i could only have a pencil exactly which i thought was at at the time i was like that's weird why did but now i totally understand Mm -hmm. yeah i mean it's like what we talked about earlier you never know what people are going to do (laughs) no yeah, but it was it's it's it, it a, a museum where you can do research on the the stuff where the public stuff is basically publicly accessible. I, I absolutely love it. So, all right. Well, thank you very much for your time. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. It's been great. I hope you are enjoying and learning from the stories, experiences, and advice of our guests as much as I am. If you like the podcast, we would appreciate a five-star rating and a nice comment would be greatly appreciated. Please be sure to tell your friends to listen and subscribe as well. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We are produced by 5014. Audio editing is done by Jakub Czerny. And I am your host, Matthew Doles. For more information about the podcast and our guests, please visit our website, wisefoolpod.com. The Wise Fool is supported in part by an EEA grant from Iceland, Liechtenstein, and Norway in an effort to work together for a green, competitive, and inclusive Europe. We would also like to thank our partners, Hunt Kastner in Prague, Czech Republic, and Kunstcentrene i Norge in Norway. Links to EEA grants and our partner organizations are available in the show notes or on our website, wisefoolpod.com.